Hello and welcome to In Unison. I'm Zane Fiala. And I'm Giacomo G. Gregoli. And this is our podcast all about new choral music and the composers, conductors, choristers, and administrators who bring it to life. Let's start the show! Hello, and welcome to this mini-season of In Unison. For the next several episodes, we're partnering with Chorus America to bring you a sneak preview of what's coming up at the Chorus America Annual Conference being held this year in our hometown of San Francisco. We hope you'll enjoy this opportunity to get to know a bit more about the conference's speakers and their areas of expertise, and especially to get to know these folks on a personal level. We hope to see you in San Francisco for the Chorus America Conference, May 31st through June 2nd, 2023. More information is available at chorusamerica.org. And now, on to the show. On this episode, we're talking with Karen Hopper, the Associate Director of Performance Strategy at Razorfish, a marketing company that helps brands and businesses grow by creating unforgettable experiences that connect and enrich people's lives. But before we get into the conversation, let's start off the episode with one of Karen's favorite choral pieces, Alleluia by Jake Runstad and performed by Denver's Cantorai.
right, joining us on this episode of In Unison is Karen Hopper. And Karen is the Associate Director of Performance Strategy at Razorfish, where she helps Fortune 100 clients make smart decisions about their creative marketing using data. Prior to joining Razorfish in 2021, Karen spent a decade building successful digital marketing and fundraising campaigns for nonprofits of all sizes, including the Humane Society of the United States, PETA, Feeding America, Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, and USA for UNICEF. Karen's day-to-day involves a lot of spreadsheets, but don't let that fool you. Before turning her attention to building, testing, and optimization programs, she was managing email marketing, drafting creative briefs, navigating SMS laws, implementing digital advertising, and so much more. An in-demand marketing speaker, she regularly lectures at universities around the country, presents at events like Inbound, CM World, and MozCon, and coaches for Shine Bootcamp, a speaker accelerator for women and non-binary people. Karen holds a music degree from St. Olaf College, where she sang under Dr. Armstrong in the St. Olaf Choir, and is in her 11th season singing with the Choral Arts Society of Washington, that's in D.C., where she has the privilege to serve as the Chorus Vice President. At the Chorus America Conference this June, Karen will be leading a session titled Unleash Your Fundraising with Digital Scale, which we'll hear more about in a moment. Karen, welcome to In Unison. Hi, it's so great to be here. Woohoo! It, we're, we're really excited Woo. to have you, Karen. I, I, we were talking a little bit earlier before we started, folks who are listening, and I said that when I grow up, if I grow up, I would like to be Karen Hopper. I think the things you've accomplished are awesome, and I really feel privileged and excited um, to attend your session coming up. But we don't want to give that away. What we actually want to do today in today's interview is to get to know you a little bit more personally, and for maybe you to give folks a sense of what they might expect coming to this conference. So to that end, um, Karen, Zane and I are both foodies, and you're going to be heading back into San Francisco to give your talk, and and we're really excited to see you. But is there any place, are are you excited to come and visit? Is there a favorite restaurant in San Francisco you're excited to come back during the conference and check out? Yeah, so I haven't actually been back to San Francisco in about mm, like eight or nine years. So I'm actually not sure if anything's still open post-COVID, but <laughs> I do remember getting some really great burritos in the Mission area. And like, I'm definitely looking forward to that because believe it or not, DC does not have any good Mexican food. Like if people, that's like, that's a hot take. Um, you can fight like, you can fight me, I'll win. It's not good here. It's true. In visiting California in general, the further south you go, the better the burritos and the Mexican food gets. And San Francisco has some of the absolute best. And I feel like unique to San Francisco is that the sort of like burrito. The Mission uh, Burrito. Yeah, that's the Mission Burrito. The like thing. The assembly line where you go down Taqueria Mm -hmm. Cancun on on Mission Street. El Farolito. El Farolito across the street from the Mission Cultural Center at uh, Mm. 24th and Mission. Great place to go. Do you what's your what's your go-to order? What do you get when you when you want to get yourself a good burrito? It depends. It depends on what's good. Um, I'm a big fan of spicy food. I grew up in mm. Colorado, um, so I'm definitely no stranger to just like some really great authentic cuisine. So whatever the local special is, whatever's on the special board is often like what you should go with. Oh, totally. Have, have you been to Gracias Madre? Have you heard of this place in the mission? Oh, it's kind of new, I think, Gracias Madre. It's vegan, it, right? Yes. And it's what I love about it, actually, is that you're, is, the food is delicious, but it's the communal seating. 
that oh. you get to come in, you order your food, and you get to hang out and meet other people. And it's a great place if you're going with a small group of people and you just kind of want to get to know some new folks. Yeah. Check it out. That's a polarizing experience for some folks. Some folks really don't want communal <laughs> dining. As a restaurant, uh, you know, a, a veteran myself, uh, I've experienced that where people are like, "Oh, communal seats? <laughs> I don't know. That guy looks like I don't want to talk to him." So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so even though it's been a little while, Karen, since you've been to San Francisco, I'm sure you might have some favorite things that you do when you come and visit the city. Are there any things you might recommend for folks in the audience who might be coming to the city for the very first time? Yeah. So one of my absolute favorite things to do is to hit up the Science Museum, the California Academy of Sciences. Um, yes, they were a former client, but I still love them. Um, and they do adults only on Thursday nights. Um, which is really fun. Um, so that's when like, there's no kids around to like get in front of you in line at all of the little exhibits and activities. And you get to just like kind of walk around and be a kid again. And it's just a lot of fun. They just opened a new exhibit, I believe at the Academy of Sciences. I was, I follow them on Instagram cause I have a six year old daughter. And so I've been a few times. Um, and so they have a new exhibit. I will have to check that out. Maybe we'll put a link in our, in our show notes. Yeah, and that rooftop garden is really pretty spectacular mm. too. If you if you happen to go during the day instead of going at night too, but that that evening, the California uh, Academy of Arts at night in Golden Gate Park, it's really close to a bunch of other things too. It's across the street from the De Young Museum, so there's like a ton of stuff to do there too, which is really exciting. So definitely check that out uh, when you're at the conference. So Karen, you're going to be leading a session on digital fundraising for choral organizations. So we'd love to ask you a few questions about your inspirations on this topic and what makes you what we lovingly call a choir nerd. So here's a session we like to call the Chorister Who, where you'll tell us about the choral leader, choir, composer, singer, or administrator that fills in the blanks for the questions that we ask. And we're just going to kind of go, you can spend as much time with any of these questions as you'd like, if any of them particularly inspires you. And the first in this list is, who is the choral leader who inspired you first to be involved with choral music? So it's actually kind of difficult to put my finger on like that one moment where I was like, this is absolutely what I want to be doing. Um, because I grew up singing in the church. Like that was just what was expected of all of us. Like we were in the cherub choir in kindergarten and then we got up into like the middle grades. Um, but then I went to um, middle school and I picked band um, and I really wanted to play the French horn or drums. And my parents were like, <laughs> no, we're not going to do that in our house. Like, I don't think so. We don't want a beginning horn player. We do not want a percussionist. Absolutely not. And so I said, okay, so what are my options? And my dad was like, well, you can have a clarinet. And my mom was like, you can have a flute. Cause those are the instruments that we played. And those are the instruments we have. Uh... So uh, I picked a clarinet because it was very painful to listen to a beginner play clarinet. And it was a revenge mission. upon my parents. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I suffered through that for a whole year in sixth grade and then decided that I hated band and I quit. And so I said, okay, so at the school, you have to pick an artistic elective. I don't, I can't draw. I can't paint. I can't do orchestra because they won't let me play violin. So I'm like, I guess I'm going back to choir. Um, so signed up for choir and I had a fantastic uh, choir teacher. Her name is Sarah Branton. Um, she's currently the director at uh, Cherry Creek High School in Denver. You may have heard of them. They were good. I think they've won some Grammys now because she's just fantastic. Um, but at, like one weekend, I was hooked. Um, 
we're, we did a lot of incredible rep. Um, I had the joy of being able to do, to be at that school for, um, seventh grade all the way through high school. And, uh, as part of that, like she had gone to St. Olaf and gotten her degree there. And so all of the example tracks, it's like, oh, we're singing this piece. Let's play the St. Olaf choir singing it. I'm like, they're so good. I want to do that. And so when it came to go, getting to college, I was like, I want to go to a small school in the middle of nowhere that no one's ever heard of for a chance to sing in a choir. So that's uh, maybe not the decision making you should be doing when you're 17 and planning your life, but it turned out okay. So ended up at St. Olaf and now I'm here and the rest is history. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Next one up. The choir and or choral leader that most inspires the choral administration work that you do today. Who does it right? Who does it right? Um, so I have a lot of respect for Canarai out of Denver. Um, they are doing some really great work. Um, I'm, of course, when I'm talking about choral administration, I'm also going to just like dip into my marketing. Um, they're doing really great work with their, especially their fundraising. Um, they have really leaned into this idea of a peer-to-peer campaign where each of their members is sort of responsible for getting 30 donations over the course of 30 days um, of $30 or more. Um, and so it really just engages every single member of the organization and kind of builds this community around this overarching goal that they have. Um, and it's been really successful for them. Um, I'm actually um, getting to work with Joel right now as part of our, our, the preparation that Coral Arts is doing. Um, and it's just so fun to see like how that group has grown. Because um, of course, being from Colorado, I have a lot of friends that sing with that organization and it really has just blossomed in the last mm. few years. I'm stealing that 30 for 30. I mean, that, that idea is so brilliant. You're dropping pearls of knowledge that I am like, listen up folks. This is some good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> How about uh, the composer or choral piece um, whose work never fails to give you the chills? I know that's an overused term, but like what gives you the chills? Um, so I'm actually going to call out one of my um, St. Olaf classmates, uh, Mari Isabel Valverde. Um, she is an incredible composer. She started, I think, well before even coming to college. But she um, never ceases to amaze me with what she's able to produce. Um, and so I hope um, you're able to hear to look her up. Um, but also they just uh, commissioned a work for Contus. Um, we'll tenor, tenor, bass, bass, TTBB, um, work that is incredibly beautiful and is like right at this beautiful moment of spring. Um, so I think you should go check it out. Mm-hmm. We're big, big fans of Mari Isabel Valverde. In fact, uh, I first met her with the San Francisco Conservatory of Music when IOCSF was performing as part of their choral composition competition. God, what must have been at least a decade ago, now that I think about it, it was long, long ago, um, and her piece won the competition, and we were lucky enough to be the ones to perform it. And so since then, we've uh, maintained a long-standing relationship with Mari and, and premiered several of her pieces, and I'm a, I'm a big fan. Yeah, I love her. I actually, one of the very first times I visited San Francisco is actually to see Mari. So. Oh, yay, fantastic. So, yeah. So she showed me around. She showed me the, the good spots for yeah. the burritos at least 10 years ago. <laughs> and now she's down in, in Texas, I believe, Texas. still. Isn't yeah. that correct? Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, how about uh, next one? The choir that you've most recently discovered whose programming excites you? 
Okay, so if you all haven't heard about the Jason Max Ferdinand singers, like you are definitely missing out. Um, I think after their performance at ACD this year, like every chorister on the planet has probably heard of them. Um, but they have done some incredible arrangements and are also just really adept at molding to different styles. Like they can do Renaissance, they can do gospel, they can do all of this incredible work. Um, no matter what type of music that they're singing. Um, and they actually were also just recently on SNL um, backing up Coldplay. Um, I saw so, that. I saw that. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, like, it's an incredible performance. And like you just don't... Choir isn't usually seen in that type of light in terms of like being on stage at SNL and having that kind of visibility. And so... I think that their work that they're doing, not only musically, but just as representation for choral, the choral craft at a broader scale is just so important and so valuable for us who are, you know, trying to, especially as we're thinking about Chorus America and, and the business behind choir, um, just having more of that visibility of, hey, choir is actually pretty cool and we can do some really cool things with it and engage people in ways that are unexpected, but still true to the craft of choral musicianship. Yeah, we've had this this exact conversation on multiple episodes, I feel like, of In Unison, where we've gotten into that idea that there's a conception about choral music, that it's this buttoned up thing that happens in church, and it's always about religious matters, and it's all this same style of classical choral music. And I'm, I'm so happy to see so many ways that choirs just like the J Max Ferdinand singers are trying to break out of that mold and say no look choral music can be so much more and it can appeal to broader audiences and that's really exciting to see weren't they joined by like J Jacob Collier on stage mm -hmm. at Jacob ACDA Collier, too? The, the surprise the surprise yeah yeah, yeah cuz it was I mean, his arrangement of the Coldplay pieces that like they he did the arrangement Jason right. Max Ferdinand singers were the backup when he did that and then Coldplay was like, hey, we like this. Can you just come and like do that with us? Like I know, right? incredible. Yeah. And there's that new um pop album, uh Sam is it Sam Smith? Mm -hmm. No. Yeah, that that has like one at least one track that features some choral music pretty heavily as well. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to see it kind yeah. of trickling into more yeah, popular genres. They were they were a bit of a choir nerd too. I mean, I feel like when you grow up in the UK, like it's just also part of your lifeblood. But I mm -hmm. think yeah, Sam was a chorister themselves yeah yeah and i'm glad that you brought up the idea of like what is classical choral music um i think this is something that we've been um wrestling with especially at an institution like choral arts where we have like such a rich tradition of doing all of the big huge masterworks that are often accompanied with orchestra and that when folks think about classical music like that's the first thing that comes to mind is like those big important works that of course you know have made up all of western musical history yeah but we're getting to a point where like the audiences for those pieces are just not as prevalent anymore you know they're aging out they're dying like that's just the truth and so when we're looking to now expand repertoire we have to be looking beyond that like collapse that traditional like big c classical definition and if you want to be doing new works if you want to be premiering from BIPOC composers or queer composers or whoever that is like the commission funding like the way that works is like you're going to be commissioning a five minute piece a seven minute piece you're not going to be commissioning something that is symphony length 
And so it becomes this tug of war between the desire to stay true. I'm doing quotey fingers for those of you who are listening without video, um, that we have to get beyond that like classical terminology and actually break into something that would be more modern and more or less traditional classical in order to move the craft forward and in order to attract audiences. Karen, how about uh, a piece of music on the other end of the spectrum that you found, for whatever reason, to be most challenging to perform? Most challenging is, this is not something that's like most challenging musically, but more most challenging from just an emotional perspective. Um, and it's something that we're working on right now with Choral Arts. We are currently preparing Eric Whitaker's Sacred Veil, which is an exposition on grief. Um, the text is incredibly powerful, incredibly beautiful. It's written from the perspective of a husband whose wife has died um, from cancer at a very young age. And it's all of the writings that she had done in advance of her death, as well as him being able to process that loss um, with two young children. Um, and it's incredibly beautiful. The LA Master Chorale did the recording for it, um, I think either right before COVID or during COVID. Um, and it's just this incredibly beautiful piece, but it's one of those where even in rehearsals, you, we have to kind of like stop and take a minute. And they have said like um, Joel and Sema, who's um, preparing it for us, who also prepared it for Canary when they did it in Denver last fall, um, basically that we're not, they're not expecting every singer to even make it to the concert. Like we're, we're already, we're, we're padding the numbers to know that we might have one or two from every section, like not be able to do it um, just from a purely emotional state. Wow. Um, and so it's, it's also then going to become a challenge to like market this concert because you can't just go and say like, we're doing Eric Whitaker because of course the choral community, we have an idea of Eric Whitaker. It's Leonardo, it's boy and a girl. Like it's, those are traditional multi-tonal cool chords, which there is some of that. But it's much, this piece is much more simple and much more about the message and the text than I think any of this other work is, which is just, it's like a beauty and a challenge all at the same time. Um, so, yeah. So if you're in the DC area, I'm going to plug that first weekend of May, come on, out, come on out and see it. We're doing two shows. Um, but we'll see if we can do it twice in one day too. Like that's a, it's going to be an emotional toll on all of us. Yeah, seriously. So, I think uh, Voce's Eight is about to release a recording mm -hmm. of that with uh, him as well. Yeah. All right. I think we have one more of these uh, questions. How about the business person who most inspires your work overall today? So I'm a huge marketing nerd. Um, so I'm probably much different than a lot of the guests that you get on this program. Um, but I follow several of my uh, marketing leaders. So like you say, you have, you want to be me when I grow up, when you grow up, um, I want to be Andy Christodina when I grow up. Um, he is a content marketer out of Chicago. Um, he produces so much free, so many free resources. Um, his LinkedIn little newsletter is super valuable. Um, basically if you are thinking about a website, anything that you want to have for like direct response. So that's getting someone to do a thing, whether that's fill out a donation form, buy a ticket, sign up for an email. Like he's your guy. Like there's just so many amazing resources out there. Um, so look him up. 
follow him, especially if you do anything involving marketing. So Karen, you'll be leading a session at the Course America conference called Unleash Your Fundraising with Digital Scale. Now, we don't want to give too much away, but can you give us a bit of a teaser about what we could expect to learn at your Course America session? I'm happy to give it all away at this point <laughs> because there's so much content that's going to be packed into this like little 45-minute session that it's going to be impossible to cover everything and to cover it in the level of detail that I want to cover it in. Um, so as you can tell from my bio, I've spent 10 years doing nothing but nonprofit marketing professionally. Um, and so that's everything from social media to like email to websites, like you name it, I've done it. And every single one of those touch points has value. Um, but so for this particular session, we're going to really strip it down to the basics of direct response marketing. And so when we talk about direct response, that means we want someone to do a thing. You want to directly influence someone to click a button and give you money in this case. And that's something that I think a lot of organizations are deeply uncomfortable with just because you have to go to your list of patrons, your list of ticket buyers, your the family members of your choristers and say like, hey, we need like 50 bucks from all of you in order to like make it into the black with our operating budget this year. And we like as humans, especially just like hate asking for money. We hate asking for help. We don't want to do that. Um, and we want to make sure that we're like staying true to our brand and our organization and how we actually talk about ourselves while simultaneously being like, can you give me $10 like right this second? Um, so of course it's a tricky line to walk. Um, and so this session is going to talk about how do you write an appeal from top to bottom that stays true to the organization and to your voice, who should be signing it, who should be sending it, who you should be sending it to, how frequently you should be sending out communications. Um, I'm going to be mostly focused on email, but also touch on the value of stuff like Facebook fundraisers and like Instagram and like those that can help support something like an annual campaign um, but really it's going to be focused in on this like email area because that's ultimately like what most organizations will have access to it's like we have a list of email addresses from people who have bought tickets from us who people have signed up for updates you know all of those patrons throughout the years um, and that's really the audience that we're going to be going out to with and soliciting for something like an online fundraising campaign that's really focused more about that small dollar donor versus going out and getting a grant for 50k like we're really focused now on okay how do i get a thousand people to give me 100 dollars? and so that's what you mean by digital scale is by using mm -hmm. digital means to scale your fundraising exactly yeah. yeah um and so a lot of the principles of like direct mail like if you're writing a mail piece are similar but then with digital you are able to scale it because you're not paying a firm to print out a thousand letters for you to like have to mail them and all of that um, mm. and all that fulfillment. So it gets to this point where can we be managing more of that in-house and like how to do that and where is the best use of your resources, knowing that it might be one person who's doing everything and like only has three hours a week to help you do fundraising. Like what is the best use of those three hours to raise as much money from your digital platforms as possible? Speaking of writing emails, uh, our next question sort of talks a little bit about a, a behind the scenes 
bit of knowledge or a tidbit that maybe won't make it into the session or is like something that is cutting edge or really interesting. When writing emails, is there a tidbit or a tool, like new tools out there that might help folks with thinking about how they might write drafts for these emails or how to craft these things? Any suggestions for folks out there who are struggling to think about how to get started? I mean, that's a big old chat GPT softball that you're serving up there to smash out of the park. (laughs) Here it is. Chat GPT can help you. Um, There are a couple of other tools out there now, too. Um, Bard is actually pretty good, um, which is interesting. Like, it's the Google version of Chat GPT, where it's more of that AI, you know, ask it a question, have it do a thing for you. And I've been uh, successful at getting it to write some some things um like one of my friends used it yesterday to write a letter of recommendation for a student that came to them at four o'clock and needed something by end of day and it was like just put the bullets in of like write me a recommendation letter that says these things and it like spit out something that was good enough to then spend 10 minutes editing and send off so it's one of those potential tools um also another huge technology if you are not using canva you should mm, be. Love um, Canva. Canva is like one of my favorite things. Um, as someone who's doing a lot of this like marketing speaking kind of like as a side hustle, Canva has been an invaluable tool to be able to do things like pretty slide decks, um, Instagram posts, like get everything like themed and branded and just be able to be like, apply the theme, apply the theme, apply the theme across all of your materials. Um, and it has a premium version that's like $100 a year. It's super cheap where you can upload stuff like logos, brand colors, your fonts and have it just like sit in a little area in there. And then everything you can create and just say like use brand template and it, everything will already be branded for you. So you can create, you know, your Instagram story template and your Instagram posts and like a cover for a YouTube video and all of that. That's all branded and like set in there so you don't have to spend however long messing about with photoshop especially if you have only three hours to like do this don't mess about in photoshop get canva <laughs> they have a new integration too we love we, we use it at iocsf and uh they have a new in- integration uh that sort of combines mid-journey with templating which is this text to image generator which is really Mm -hmm. fabulous if you if you have a concert that's coming up and you're like i need a picture of a panda juggling on a bicycle like the next thing you know it has actually created this image i mean and of course we're we're sidestepping a lot of the complicated issues around how these things are credited and how they're Mm -hmm. trained and like there's certainly a lot um to discuss in in that vein but i think right now even the tools at the state that they're at are interesting things to examine and keep an eye on which is really cool yeah, um, I literally have Canva. Like, I keep looking at this other screen because I have, I have all my marketing stuff up on this other screen. And Canva is something I use at least once a week. May I ask a nerdy personal question, which is just oh, for my own personal interest? Okay. Um, who do you use for website development? There's a thousand different tools out there. I mean, from Squarespace to Webflow to this to that. Is there, are there anything where if you were thinking about redesigning your website today that you would recommend to folks? Yes. In fact, my own personal website is built on Wix. Um, and they've done a lot of really great work lately for SEO. Um, so that's, um, I know when we're talking about marketing and discovery of our groups, just naturally from people who are like moving to a new city and looking for a group to potentially sing with, a lot of that happens through Google and discoverability. Um, and so 
I think Wix is doing really great things with SEO and like the way that they're able to optimize that for people so that you don't have to like go and be an SEO expert so that you show up in search results. Um, so their, their tool is really great and really straightforward. And again, I use Canva to design everything on my website. So there you go. Full circle. Um, <clears throat> so Karen, is there anything that we can or should be doing to prepare to get engaged and uh, excited for your session? Um, I would say follow me on Twitter. I always uh, do lots of little market marketing nuggets uh, here and there. Um, that's at no chill filter because I clearly have no chill and no filter. Uh, so that's where that that little name come from came from. Um, but also, uh, I'll send uh, I'll send the link to include here. But the direct response fundraising guide from MNR, which is the firm I worked at before. Even though I still I don't work there anymore, it's still the best in the industry, I would say, for direct response fundraising. The basics of how do you write an ask? How do you like craft your message? How do you stay true to your brand? How do you not offend people? Um, because it's very easy, especially when you're writing about asking for money, to um, drift across the line and like not not do it in an authentic way. So. Uh, I will send you the link and we can include that in the notes. What's one way you would say that folks sometimes do drift across the line? I would say it doesn't happen as much with arts organizations, but when we're talking about ethical fundraising, when we're fundraising on behalf of a community in need, um, it's very easy to portray that community in need in a way that is uh, not humane, that is mm. not, um, doesn't make them seem like, the neighbors that you have down the street, right? It's those people and we are the saviors. It's very white savior. It can get uh, yeah. very bad. Um, we, uh, of course, went through a huge reckoning of this with this in 2020 um, during the summer of the uprisings um, and finally really released an updated guide to talk about what it means to be an ethical fundraiser. Karen, you've dropped a ton of uh, great knowledge, technical information. I mean, if I were sitting at home, I might feel like, oh gosh, I don't know. This seems, this all sounds a little like beyond my skills and scary. So I would like to just ask straightforward, who should come to your session? Anyone who ever needs to write an email for your organization should come to the session. Um, again, we're going to break it down into like the absolute like one-on-one basics and really talk through like what makes a powerful email. Um, the mistakes I see groups make most frequently. Um, so this is like coming from people that do fundraising for other groups that have come to me and say, hey, we sent this email, it received zero donations. Why did it receive zero donations? The mistakes that are most common are you feature the successes of the season too much, which I know we want to talk about how amazing we are. And we did all of this great work. But someone who's reading that, who you're asking for money is going to say, well, you don't need my help. Mm. You're doing great already. Like you just presented all of this amazing um, new rep. You have commissions, you've got underwriters, like you're set, like happy to come to your next concert. But I don't see why you need my help to do that. Um, so that's the first big mistake. And then the second big mistake is featuring too many facts. Just like all the numbers, like once people have had, you know, two or three statistics, their their brain kind of wanders and it's like, oh, 
glassy eyed, like that's just a bunch of data. It's a bunch of numbers. Like it becomes meaningless. And so being able to contextualize the numbers that we're giving folks and like making that about why we're reaching out now in this moment for money is much more impactful than just listing a bunch of statistics about your organization, your financial status, or all of that. Um, so one of, I think one of the best ones, I'm going to butcher the percentage um, for Coral Arts. Um, one of our best ones is like ticket revenue only makes up like 30% of our annual operating budget and the rest gets filled up with either donations or grants or other types of underwriting. Um, so it's just one of those moments that we talk about in our fundraising is like, yeah, we, we perform at the Kennedy center and sometimes we sell out the Kennedy center, but even if we sell out the Kennedy center, it's still only going to make a small dent in the actual cost of opening that hall. Yeah. One of the things that I've seen, uh, I forget who it is, is a theater in uh, Brooklyn that basically does the real shows people the real cost of putting on these performances versus what the price of any ticket is. And it's like, usually it's about a third. It's like, yeah, yeah you're, you're paying 30 bucks to see it. But actually to put all of this together, if we were to charge based on per seat, it's like 120 bucks per person. Yeah, we'd rather feel like it's accessible and you can come and see what we do more than that. And if you can support it, we'd love your support. Yeah. And that's one of the financial realities of performing in these big halls these days. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm speaking as someone who's heavily involved with choral arts. And a lot of our choristers even don't realize like how expensive it is to perform in a hall like the Kennedy Center, because we're not being invited to be on their season. We're a renter. Like we're going and renting that space from them. And it's gotten to the point where it just doesn't make financial sense in our budget to do all of our concerts at the Kennedy Center like we used to because it's just gotten more expensive. And if we're not presenting like Messiah or one of the, or like our Christmas shows will almost always sell out, then we're starting to like take more and more of a hit in terms of the revenue that we recoup from that kind of performance. So then that's the other side of it is like, oh, well, you're not even performing at the Kennedy Center anymore. Are you like still a valid organization? So it's just like tricky line to walk of we're trying to appeal more to communities that maybe can't make it to the Kennedy Center. Maybe we can't offer tickets at a, a lower price if we go to a venue like a church instead of renting out the Kennedy Center. But then, yeah, so marketing for choirs is a whole fun experience. <laughs> Karen, this has been an awesome conversation. We're nearing the end of our time together. How about some follow-ups and shout-outs? First of all, where can folks find you on, online? Uh, on the internet, you can find me mostly on Twitter, um, at No Chill Filter, um, and then also on Instagram, at LaLaForte, which was my uh, username when I was like 12, and I've just kept <laughs> held on to it. So here we are. <laughs> it's vintage now, right? Like, the totally. early 2000s are cool again. <laughs> I still go by Zaynard from an old college nickname because I played trumpet and Maynard Ferguson was a famous trumpeter. Amazing. And my friends started calling me Zaynard and still to this day, yeah. that's, that's my nickname. That's yeah. my slang. Oh, and of handle. course, <laughs> yeah. And of course, LinkedIn, like you have my name, find me on the internet. We can chat. Um, and of course, if there's any questions or anything that you absolutely want to see in this session, like I'm still putting the content together and 
there will be a Q&A at the end. So, and I'll be around, of course, for the whole conference. So we can get, you can tell I get very nerdy and very deep on the fundraising and the marketing. So we can absolutely have more conversations. Fantastic. I love it. Anyone you'd care to shout out as a, a, when you've got the mic and you've got this opportunity, anybody else you'd like to say, these people are awesome. Check them out. Oh my goodness. I feel like I've given so many shout outs. You have. We've gotten we'll, we'll a few already. All of them too, yeah. Like already. Definitely like you have to go listen to the Jason Max Ferdinand singers. They're so good. Um, one of our local uh, conductors here is in that group as well. Um, T. Um, Theodore Thorpe, the third T. And he just goes by T. He's amazing um, and does really great work with um, men and women of the gospel, which is one of the Washington performing arts. Um, choirs here in DC as well. Um, and then of course, choral arts, um, you can't miss us. Uh, we're, I would say one of the best, if not the best in DC, of course, that, those are some fighting words because there are several large symphonic choirs in DC. Um, but if you're in the area, please look us up. Um, especially if you are looking to audition for a new group, um, we're going to be start doing, we're going to start doing auditions for next season, um, quite soon. Um, on a rolling basis. And then, of course, come and see us perform the Sacred Veil on May 6th and Haydn's Mass for Troubled Times on June 11th, um, which will be performed at the Kennedy Center. So come on, come on down and uh, hear some good choir music in DC. Fantastic. Well, this has been really spectacular. I, I like diving into all these uh, things that are extra musical. They're outside of the musical focus of a choral organization because they're just as important as singing well and performing great music as marketing and fundraising and all the things because without that infrastructure, then you don't actually have the opportunity to do any of the singing and the music making that you love. So um, I'm very appreciative, uh, Karen, that you took the time to chat with us and I'm very excited for your session um, at Chorus America. in June excellent yeah no I'm very um I'm very excited to come and give back to the choir community that has given that has given me so much uh over the course of my life of course because I'm not you know I'm not a professional musician I'm not a professional chorister um I'm doing this purely out of joy and being able to bring my professional experience and then help build these organizations that are so vital to our communities is just a joy for me on top of joy. So I'm looking forward to seeing all of you in San Francisco. Thank you so much, Karen. We're really excited to meet you and we can't wait for your session. Let's finish off today's episode with the piece Karen referenced earlier, written by Mari Isabel Valverde and premiered by Cantus. This is Before Spring.
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social media at inunisonpod. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think. Phonetic pronunciation of Old Church Slavonic checked by Chorus Dolores, who really loves this stuff. Thank you, Gospody. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our transcripts have been diligently edited by IOCSF member and friend of the pod, Fausto Daus. And our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Please be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.